0: Well, church history confirms that nations and leaders have risen up in an attempt, in attempt to stamp out the gospel. You see, the hatred of Christians didn't start with the Reformation in the 17th century. It didn't start with Diocletian in the 4th century, nor did it start with Nero in the middle of the 1st century. You see, this hatred has been going on since the birth of the church following Pentecost. And the early church faced persecution after persecution, and we're going to see this morning the second wave of persecution that they faced from the Sanhedrin Council. And brothers and sisters, I want to point out that all of these persecutions have one thing in common. And that one thing is, no matter the unbelief, no matter the hatred, no matter the severe torture that the Christian church has faced or will face, the gospel cannot be stamped out. God's glory will continue to spread to all nations through the church, despite the failed attempts of the devil and his adversaries. So we're going to see one of the earliest failed attempts to stamp out the gospel this morning from the Sanhedrin Council in Acts 5, 17 through 42. So if you have the word of God, stand with me and we'll read from Acts. Acts 5, 17 through 42. Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees. They were filled with jealousy, so they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. But when the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Well, someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid of the people and how they might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, "'Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood.'" Well, Peter and the apostles replied, "'We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging on a tree.'" God exalted this man at his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken out for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the senses and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if, this is the pl- for if this is the plan or the work of human origin, it will fail. But it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him, and they called in the apostles and had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they released them then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be to, to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name every day in the temple and in various homes they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah this is the word of god you may be seated All right, so this epic account is broken up into three sections, and these are going to be our three points this morning. Our first point is going to be the apostles' prison break, so we're going to see that in verses 17 through 24. Our second point, the second scene, the Sanhedrin's intense shake, and that'll be verses 25 through 33, and y'all know me, I'm going to continue the rhyming scheming here, so we come to our our final point, Gamaliel's faulty take. So we have the apostles' prison break, the Sanhedrin's intent shake, and Gamaliel's faulty take. And so those will be our three scenes this morning. All right, so we come to our very first one, the apostles' prison break. Look with me at verses 17 through 18. Luke writes, then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees. They were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. So right out of the gate, we haven't been in Acts, so we need to think about the word then. What is Luke signaling to us? Well, he's signaling that something previously had happened, that these Jewish leaders, that this jealousy, it's happening from something that came before and what is that? Well, I don't think it's just one thing. I think it's a culmination of many things. You see just a rewind in Acts 4 Peter and John were arrested and they were brought before the Sanhedrin the very first time and they told them commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And they threatened them and then right after that they sent them out and what did Peter and John do? well they went to the early church and they told them everything that happened and once they did that this is one of my favorite accounts in all of the bible they with one voice lifted their lifted their prayers up to the lord and asked the lord for more for more boldness and that's exactly what happened they continued to pray proclaim the gospel and so Surprisingly, the whole city of Jerusalem thought very highly of these Christians. And we see that in chapter 5, 13 through 14. Look with me there. It says, No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke very well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. You see, Luke is showing the reader right here that the city of Jerusalem had this type of fear, reverence and approval for the apostles to put it simply jerusalem which once voted predominantly jewish leaders was now in favor of the apostles and this was creating a type of movement that was happening right before the sanhedrin's eyes and don't miss this they did not like it whatsoever Well, this change of loyalty greatly angered the Jewish leaders, provoking them to once again put not only Peter and John in prison, but they put the rest of the apostles in prison. And look at what the text says, that they were thrown into a public prison, a place where everyone could see them. The Jewish leaders wanted to make a visible and public point to the city of Jerusalem. We are against everything that these men stand for, And we have the authority to stamp it out. Well, at least they thought they had the authority to stamp out the gospel. Look with me at verses 19 through 20. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. In my opinion, this scene right here is more riveting than any Hollywood movie you've ever seen. I want us to try to enter into this narrative to kind of better draw out what is happening that will set it up for um, the apostles going before the Sanhedrin. So just picture yourself right quick. Picture yourself sitting in a jail cell in the middle of Jerusalem. This isn't your first stint in jail. No, it's your second. You have already been threatened once by the Jewish leadership, and now being thrown back in prison waiting a second trial has to mean at best Forty lashes less than one, and at worst, martyrdom. However, in the middle of the night, the jail cell opens, and an angel comes to you proclaiming, go back to the temple, so the place that you got arrested, go back to that same place and keep proclaiming the word. Keep proclaiming Jesus Christ, the source of life. Well, think through this with me. Your homes are not in Jerusalem. You are from Galilee. And I think there's this temptation for anybody to respond with, you know, brother, this might be the breaking point for the Jewish leaders. If we do this, our death is almost certain. Should we just go back to fishing? It might be better for us to retreat. You know, at least if we do this, we'll be able to live out the rest of our lives. Do we see the tension in the story right here? You see, this is a pivotal moment on how the apostles will respond to opposition. Will they obey the Lord and go preach or will they revert to comfort by fleeing? Well, let's look at verse 21. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. There wasn't even a moment of hesitation. The, the apostles heard and obeyed the command of God through his heavenly messenger. They immediately and went to partake in the exact same thing that put them in prison in the first place, preaching, as the ESV translates it, all the words of this life. They were called to herald all the words of this life, and you might even want to circle the word all in your Bible. It's very clear that every single part of the gospel is essential to the whole. We proclaim the gospel, and we proclaim it in its entirety, all the words of this life. Well, Christ Fellowship, their willingness to herald the gospel in the midst of persecution is an example for us to follow. Nevertheless, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our Savior's eternal willingness to suffer and die so that the apostles might stand forgiven, washed clean, and empowered to do His will. Without Jesus' willingness, the apostles would still be in prison, imprisoned in their sins and under the curse of death. You see, Paul David Tripp says in his Advent book, come, let us adore him. He said, willing Jesus is the only hope for unwilling sinners. Praise God for Jesus's willingness that enabled the apostles obedience to him. Well, speak of speaking of obedience. I want us to think through the angels command to go and preach all the words of this life. You see, these are like subpoints. All these subpoints will start with the letter C as we're thinking about the command. These are three applications for us Christians. The first one is there is Catholicity in the command. And when I say Catholicity, I don't want our minds to think about the Roman Catholic Church. No, Catholicity just means universality shared by all Christians. And so, to put it simply, we as Christians today share this same command with the apostles. Now, there's a lot of differences between us today and the apostles, but this command right here to preach all the words of this life stays the same. This wasn't optional for the apostles, and it certainly isn't optional for us today. But I do want to say that our gospel arena is going to look different from person to person. You know, it's not going to be a first century temple. But it might be your teacher's lounge. It might be your PTA meetings. It might be your ER wing. It might be your college study group. Well, it might be your gym, your neighborhood, or your country club. The context is going to look different depending on the stage of life, yet it's clear the command stays the same. Go and preach the gospel. Well, next, there is certainly clarity in the command as well. The apostles did not have to speculate or guess about what they were commanded to do and what they were commanded to say. I've had numerous conversations with Christians who clearly perceive the command to share the gospel, yet what keeps them back from actually sharing it is this underlining fear of not knowing what to say. And I'm not saying that they don't understand the gospel. No, there's this underlining fear that they won't be able to answer questions that come at them. And so I understand that fear. However, the reality is we'll never ever be able to answer every single unbeliever's objections. You see, but praise God that the gospel, not our answers, is the power of God unto salvation. It's of the highest importance to get the gospel right and get the gospel across than just to answer every single objection that an unbeliever might have. Well, lastly, we see contentment in the command. The apostles were uncertain what was going to happen the next morning when they showed up in the temple to preach the gospel. Again, they were thrown in prison for that very reason. Yet they were content in obeying the command, and they trusted God with the outcome. Christ Fellowship, is this our posture and mindset? Or do we ever allow ourselves not to actually share the gospel because of a perceived outcome that might take place? And this is all in our head. We might start to think, you know, if I share the gospel with my friend, our relationship might never be the same. I might lose my job at work. My class might ostracize me at school. Or my kid might be blackballed from birthday parties and playdates. You see, we can easily start to spiral in obsessing over all these perceived outcomes. And remember, this might not happen. This is just happening in our head. And instead of just trusting God with the outcome, we stay silent. Well, Christ Fellowship, I'm not sure what's going to happen when you open your mouth at work or when you open your mouth at school or the gym. Those things very well may take place. Yet remember... That the God who commanded you to preach the gospel is the God that's sovereign over your workplace. Is the God that's sovereign over the gym. Is the God that's sovereign over your school. And so this text is calling us to be content in the command and trust God with the outcome. Well, speaking of outcomes, we come to our next scene where we will see the capture and trial of the apostles for preaching the gospel. We come to our second point, the Sanhedrin's intense shake. I'm going to try and summarize some of this section because it's fairly lengthy. And so the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites that was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees, came together for the trial of the apostles. They sent their guards in verse 21 to bring prisoners to the stand, only to find out in verse 23... Which I love, the jail was securely locked with the guards standing in front of the door and no one was inside. Verse 24 reads Look with me, as the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. I want us to see the irony here because it's so very thick. You see, the Sadducees were the ones who held the majority of the council. They represented the theologically liberal sect of Judaism. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miraculous signs, the resurrection, eternal life, heaven, or hell. And we read in verse 17 that it was the Sadducees who were filled with jealousy and rose up against the apostles. It was the Sadducees who were ready to stamp out the gospel. It was the Sadducees who did not believe that angels were real yet it was the Sadducees that sat that sat here perplexed wondering where in, where in the world are the apostles Do you see the irony here? But more importantly, do you see God's omnipotence versus the limited power of the Sadducees? You see, the Sadducees' public jail and temple police were no match for the sovereign Lord of the universe. It's like the Sadducees were trying to put out a forest fire with a single bucket of water. Christ Fellowship, I don't want us to miss this. God's act in freeing the apostles shows exactly whose side he's on. I don't want us to be confused. God is sovereignly declaring that his favor is on his people, the apostles, not the Sadducees. This might have been new news for many people in Jerusalem. However, right here, it's obvious that God's unlimited power is behind his apostles. And if that's the case, the message they proclaim will not be stamped out. Let's pick it up in the account, verse 28, after the apostles have been re-arrested and they're standing on trial before the Sanhedrin. Verse 28 reads, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The trial has convened, the opening statements and accusations have been pronounced. Well, what's the charge? It's twofold. First, the Jewish leaders ordered the council not to teach in Jesus' name. Well, are they guilty of this charge? In their eyes, absolutely. In our old house, we had this fig plant that sat in our playroom, And Henry used to love to play in it. And so what he would do, he would come into our room, and there would be black soil all over his shirt, all over his hands. I don't even know how it got in his hair, but it was in his hair. And then we would go, Kelsey and I would go into the playroom, and we would look at the floor. And it, the carpet wasn't white anymore. No, it was black with all the soil all over the floor. It's like everything about that scene screamed guilty. And it's like the Sanhedrin is looking at the apostles and everything about them in their eyes screams guilty. It's not only that they're guilty in their eyes, but they're culpable and responsible to the utmost degree. It's so obvious that they have not listened to the Jewish leadership. Why? Because the whole city of Jerusalem has been filled up with the gospel. Yet they're not taking orders from the Sanhedrin. And I want to point this out. The Sanhedrin doesn't realize this, but they're actually giving these apostles a type of progress report on Jesus' command right before he ascended into heaven. In Acts 1-8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I can picture like John and Peter like, Pumping fists, like, oh wow, we're actually doing what Jesus commanded us, kind of giving us an A plus in some senses. And so that's just a side note. But secondly, the last charge that they gave them was far worse than the first. Yet it was also true. The high priest charges the apostles with with determining to make the Jewish leadership guilty of this man's blood. This is really sad here. I want us to look at the text. You see, the high priest couldn't even bring himself to say the name Jesus. He just said, this man's blood. But hear me out. The hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders is on center stage. You might recall less than 50 days ago, they were all together before Pilate crying, his blood be on us and on all our children. You see, the apostles were only charging them with what they had already initially charged themselves with. It's somewhat interesting to note, too, that there's no mention of escaping from prison. The Sadducees couldn't explain it, so they just dismissed the charges altogether. So what's the apostles' response of these charges? Well, let's look at verse 29. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. Peter, speaking on behalf of the apostles right out of the gate, gives the council what should have been this earth-shattering realization. You see, he's saying we must obey God rather than people. Well, what does that mean? Why is it earth-shattering? Well, Peter's telling them, you're actually opposing the God whom you think you're serving. And now if you're directly opposing God's commands, well, then you're opposing God himself. Brothers and sisters, I, again, don't want us to miss this. The apostles are not the only ones on trial. No, it's the council too. Peter has flipped the trial, and he's about to lay charge after charge to the Sanhedrin council. Well, back to the passage, or I'm sorry, right quick, I want to give an application. Peter's opening statement, I think, is very instructive for us Christians relating to any delegated authority like the state, parents, or even church leaders. You see, God in different ways delegates his authority to people for the purpose of making decisions within a particular jurisdiction. God's good delegated authority should be life giving and strengthening and growing to those around it. And we as Christians must submit to that authority like the state. Unless, well, unless the state ever commanded Christians to stop gathering for no justifiable reason, or the state commanded us to worship other gods, or the state commanded us to burn our sacred writings, then. We obey God rather than people, for in those cases the state has forfeited their right to govern us, and so we go with God's commands who supersedes all things. Well, back to the passage, we have to ask ourselves now, although Sanhedrin council pronounced the apostles guilty, what crime had they actually committed? What laws had these men broken? Well, none. They were innocent men standing before a guilty and wicked council. And Peter lays charge after charge to them. But I don't want us to miss the mercy that he showed them as well. The apostles were not political insurrectionists. They were not trying to overthrow the Sanhedrin council. No, their aim was a spiritual one. And it shows in the way that they responded with both grace and truth. Look with me at verse thirty. Peter says this, The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging on a tree. Well, God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter starts by saying in verse 30 that the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Now, he could be alluding to two things. He could be alluding to his incarnation or his resurrection. I think it's the latter. You see, Peter right here is rooting the gospel in God the Father, whom the council believed, again, that they were serving. Peter is essentially saying, it's unreal that you're rejecting Jesus. It's unreal that you're rejecting our message, because all of this comes from the Father, whom you claim to worship, You are actually opposing him at this very moment. Your whole Old Testament is pointing to the coming of Messiah who would come to save his people's sins. Yet you treated him like a common criminal by hanging him on a tree. Peter's usage of the word tree right here harkens back to Deuteronomy 21, 23 that states, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. His death that the Jewish leaders advocated was a cursed death. And Peter isn't backing down here. No, he doubles down on the truth that it was the Jewish leaders that put Jesus to death. He's saying, what you despised, what you shamed, what you reviled, what you spat on, what you murdered. God honored by raising him from the dead and placing him at his right hand as ruler and savior. Where Peter landed the plane, it It leaves me in awe every time I read this passage. I mean, let's get real. If someone were to throw me in jail, not once but twice, threaten my friends, and even rage against the God that I love, I'm sure they would probably not get Peter's response from me. I'd probably spend my whole time hammering down on the fact that God is the judge of all the earth, and they will have to give an account for what they're doing. Now, Peter surely says this. But he goes a step further. He goes a step further to talk about the repentance and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 31, look there with me. God exalted this man as his right hand as ruler. All right, so we stop there as ruler. He's saying, yes, he is the judge of all the earth. But he goes, he continues, what does he say? As ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He gives his enemies grace, something they did not deserve, because Peter and the apostles were also recipients of that grace, something they did not earn, and something they did not deserve. Brothers and sisters, Peter right here is calling for a response, that these unworthy men would respond in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Christians, I think this should cause us to think have we given up on our most hard-hearted non-Christian family, friends, or coworkers? Have we ceased to speak about spiritual things with them because we might label them as a lost cause? Well, in this passage, Peter is instructing us not to be the judge and arbiter of God's grace in the gospel. Keep speaking all the words of this life, even if they continue to reject him. You never know when the Lord might use your proclamation to open up their eyes to the gospel. Well, even as I say this, and I've had many conversations with people in here who long for their spouses and their kids and their family members and their coworkers and neighbors to come to saving faith in Christ. But at the present state, it might seem like it's hopeless. You might even be discouraged right now, and you've just taken a step back in sharing the gospel. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to look at you and say that you are not alone. I think this could be a great conversation to have in your community groups throughout the week. Talk with one another. Speak about the reality and difficulty of proclaiming a gospel to people who could care less in the slightest. But encourage one another through prayer and the word to continue in it. Continue to speak all the words of this life. Christ saved me in college and I was sitting at Mississippi State at a coffee shop about a year after Christ saved me. And a brother in my fraternity who was a couple years older than me came up to me. I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. But he came up to me and he said, Bryce, I want to apologize to you. And I said, why? Why Why do you want to apologize to me? We didn't even really interact in college. And he goes, I want to apologize because I never shared the gospel with you. I looked at you as someone who was without hope. I'm standing here as somebody that people counted as without hope because of my depravity and rebellion against the Lord. But the Lord saw fit to save me. And people who think There's people in here who might think, man, my brother or my sister or my cousin or my mother or father is without hope. Know that God's arm is not too short to save. That as he saved me, he can save them as well. We just have to keep proclaiming the gospel. Well, what's the response of the Jewish leaders after the apostles shared the good news of the gospel with them? Did they repent and believe? Well, look at verse 33. It's actually the exact opposite. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. If you're thinking to yourself right now, all right, this seems a bit irrational. Well, unbelief is irrational. Peter is graciously explaining to these men how their sins could be blotted out, yet they responded in hatred and in rage. You see, these Jewish leaders, their pride, their self-sufficiency, their troubled conscience, and ultimately their hatred against the Lord brought them to a place of, sheer irrationality and we can clearly perceive how irrational people act in ir- irrational ways as they're trying to stamp out the gospel well the sanhedrin's mo is that the apostles and their message might be stamped out and it seems like at least up to this point in the account that they're inching closer and closer and closer to that end when we come to our final scene this morning gamaliel's faulty take Look with me at verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. You see, Gamaliel was a Pharisee, a part of the Sanhedrin party that promoted faithfulness to God's law. He was like the rabbi of rabbis. In the pro-golfing world, when you turn 50, you're eligible to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yet because of the game's longevity, golfers will be inducted into the Hall of Fame even while they're finishing competing on the tour. It's unique. No other sport, to my knowledge, has Hall of Fame players who are still actively competing in their sport. Will Gamaliel, he was like a Hall of Famer finishing out his career everyone respected this man. We are told that Paul was educated at his feet. One rabbinic scholar said this upon his death. He said the glory of the law ceased, and purity and abstinence died. That's a pretty bleak outlook, but the point still stands. Gamaliel was mature, well-respected, careful, and esteemed by all. And Gamaliel, in this scene, pauses the trial, making sure that the council is not acting on pure emotions. He goes on to give the council this short history lesson on two other movements in the past. You see, both movements had one thing in common. When the leader goes, so does the movement. His first example was a man named Thaddeus who rose up claiming to be somebody. He had 400 followers, Yet when his followers dispersed, so did the uh, when he died, his followers dispersed. And secondly, he reminds him of Judas the Galilean who rose up in the days of the senses. He also attracted a following. Yet when he perished, the same thing happened as Thaddeus. All his followers were scattered. And so what is the crux of his argument? What is Gamaliel's lesson trying to prove? Well, look with me at verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or the work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. You see, initially, my first thought in hearing what Gamaliel said was one of deep respect. I thought to myself, you know, is he subtly or secretly on the apostle's side? Is he like a spy behind enemy lines attempting to try to disrupt the Sanhedrin council? Well, after much study, I don't think that's the case. It actually might be the very opposite. You see, it seems like Gamaliel adopts this laissez-faire approach, and he equates this movement of the apostles with the rest of the movements. Let's just wait and see what happens. It's likely that they will just fall away like the rest of these other messianic movements. You don't need to take action because there's a very real chance that it's just going to fizzle out on its own. Furthermore, his logic of it's of God, it will stand, and if it's of not, then it will fail, it seems to be faulty. You know, in the end, that's certainly the case. But there's definitely times in the short term that godly plans can fail and evil plans can succeed. You see, Gamaliel, he saw this movement as just another movement. His opinions were entirely objective. The story of Jesus of Nazareth was just a moment in history that created this type of disturbance like the rest of the moments in history. He didn't understand Jesus being the moment in history when God became man and reconciled the world to himself. Gamaliel was confronted with the greatest truth in all of the universe and he stands as a judge dealing with it as just any other truth that came across his desk. You see Gamaliel's biggest blunder was the fact that he failed to respond in repentance and faith. He's an indifferent unconverted man giving his pragmatic opinion on Christianity. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it best, I love this quote, he said, Poor Gamaliel, he never looked at the gospel message personally. If he had, he would not have just given his great ideas. Do you know what he would have done? He would have said to the Sanhedrin, we are all sinners. We are relying on the law. We think we can put ourselves right with God. I've been wrong. You are all wrong. These men are right. He would have risked death in order to say that. And I certainly agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Don't mistake this. There is no neutral ground. His agnostic outlook, this on-the-fence attitude, it is in opposition to the Lord. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're for me. There's no one in the middle. No, this seemingly on-the-fence is actually opposition. I wonder if there's anyone in here who's had a similar career to Gamaliel. You've accomplished great things. You're respected and esteemed by all. When you stand and speak like Gamaliel, people stop and listen. You might even, like Gamaliel, have adopted this on-the-fence approach to Christianity. It seems like a useful religion, but you're not going to interfere with it. You've been a good person up to this moment. Well, friend, I want to tell you, First, we're so thankful that you're here. We're so thankful that you came to Christ Fellowship this morning. But like Gamaliel, he's in opposition to God. And friend, you at this moment are in opposition to God. But I want to say that you're not alone. Because all the Christians in here were once in opposition to God. But we believed in the gospel. The gospel that says God has created everything. He has created everyone, and he has created people in his image to worship him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they failed. And now everyone that follows him, you and me, are born into sin, born under the curse. But God, from all eternity, had a plan to reconcile the world to himself. And don't miss this. That was plan A. And he sent his son to live the life that we could not live, And die on the cross. And all those that repent and believe in Jesus, they're not in opposition to him anymore. No, they're worshiping him. They're sons and daughters of the king. And I'll encourage you to repent and believe in Jesus. That you might not be on um, opposing the Lord anymore. All right, so what's the Sanhedrin's reaction? Let's look at verse 39. They heard what Gamaliel said, and they were persuaded by him. So they warned them and sent them away. Well, no, that's not what the text says. That was conclusion to the first imprisonment. This time they turned up the heat by threatening them not to speak in the name of Jesus and flogging them too, which usually involved 40 lashes less than one. The Sanhedrin expected that this gross punishment would finally silence the apostles once and for all. This was their plan to stamp out the gospel. Let's look at the reaction of the apostles. Did it work? Well, look with me. It says this. It says, then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name." Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What a conclusion, right? Forty lashes less than one flog saying, you cannot do this. And they continue to do it. They walk in obedience to the Lord. Their reaction is both moving and instructive. The persecution led to praise. They were honored to be dishonored for the sake of Jesus. And this is the hallmark of Christianity. Counting it all joy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I want to ask Christian. Have you ever been persecuted for proclaiming the gospel? And if so, how did you respond? Did you respond with all joy? Well, quickly, quickly, I want to say, if you haven't been persecuted, well, this could. I'm not saying it is definitely, but I'm saying it could be an indicator that you are not opening up your mouth to proclaim the good news of the gospel. You see, those that are on the sidelines, they're never, those that are on the sidelines are always safe, meaning they're never proclaiming the gospel. And so if that's the case, I would encourage you to ask the Lord for boldness. Well, for those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel, how did you respond? Well, the response of the apostles seemed to debunk the prosperity gospel in one single swoop. When you do good to God, God will return to you in a hundredfold. Well, I keep thinking to myself, how would the prosperity's preachers preach this text? I don't think they could, because the apostles' obedience to Christ leads them to persecution. The apostles understood that it was God who was honoring them through their suffering. You see, Christians, we need to see it all joy for the sake of Christ when we suffer because it's like an affirmation from the Father showing that we are truly sons and daughters. I pray that we would see our suffering in this light. Also, they not only rejoiced in being a witness for Jesus, but they also continued, as I said before, to be a witness through the preaching of the gospel. Throw them in prison. They will continue to proclaim the gospel. Threaten their lives, they will continue to make the name of Jesus known. Beat them half to death. Christ's name will still go forth. God's gospel cannot be stamped out. Well, as we land the plane, I cannot help but think of Genesis 5020 um, and how that speaks to this narrative. You see, Joseph says in Genesis 5020, What you planned. Uh, what You planned evil against me? Well, God planned it for good to bring it about that many people might be saved. It seems like this passage fits perfectly with um, Joseph's theological confession. Yet I do not want us to be confused that the Sanhedrin... They're, try- they're, not try- they're trying to stamp out the gospel, but it's not like God is reacting to their every move like a chess master is reacting to a Berlin defense. You move this way, and I'll react this way. No, what the Sanhedrin meant for evil, God meant it for good. God was sovereign over their every move, directing and ordaining all that was happening for his name's sake, so that the gospel might continue to be preached. The Sanhedrin's failed attempt was futile, before it even started. Similar to Pharaoh in Exodus, similar to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, Herod in Matthew, Nero in the first century, Diocletian in the fourth century, and the papal opposition in the 16th century. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we lift up our eyes from this passage and see God sitting on his throne, sovereign over everything that's happening, knowing if that is the case, That the gospel will not be stamped out. And what's our response to this? Well, it's simple. We keep on proclaiming. We keep on giving unbelievers all the words of this life. Let us pray.